Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I've known Michael uh, since I was a young professional starting in the business when I joined Drexel Burnham in early 1986. And so, Michael, thank you for being here. It's really wonderful to be you. with you, Dan. Really, really great to have you. So we're going to go back and kind of create some background around you from a business perspective. I read that in 1957 at age 11, it's probably not right that I should have just said at age 11, but in 1957, at age 11, you wrote to President Eisenhower telling him you wanted to lead the country into space. You actually attended Berkeley with an intention to pursue that dream. The Watts riots happened, and something changed, and you wound up in finance. Talk a little bit about the path to finance for Mike Milken. Well, 1957 is when Sputnik went up. And I think it's indicative, as you think about something, uh, that this is the Soviet Union thought it was their finest day, and that uh, they were superior, or communism is superior to the free enterprise system, and they put something in space, just a little ball at the time. And this was duck and cover drills. If you could put something in space, it could drop on your classroom in school. And so this was a challenge. I wrote that letter then because I'd always been interested in space travel. And my qualifications, never missing a math problem or science problem, reading comic books starting at five, fully understood space travel at the time. That's why I wrote the president telling him <laughs> I was equipped. <laughs> Unfortunately, I never got a letter back. I was quite disappointed. But I, yes, I went to Berkeley. And I chose Berkeley for one, they had the most Nobel Prize winners in science, but I also chose it because you could see the whole world from the Berkeley campus. At that time, it was rated as the number one undergraduate and graduate school in the world. And I came home in 1965, and shortly after I was there during the summer, the Watts riots started. Mm -hmm. And this, is what, this was an insurrection, and the city was on fire, and I was 19 years old, and I knew everything, and I couldn't understand why Los Angeles was on fire. It was a city that I didn't feel a lot of discrimination growing up. It wasn't an eastern city that was really segregated. And if you lived in Los Angeles for a year, you were considered a native. And now places that I had visited with my father were burned out factories, etc. And it took me a long time to reflect on this, and it was a young African-American man who told me his father didn't have access to capital. No one would loan him money because he was black. No one would ever loan him money. And here he's sitting, looking at a building that burned, and he had no job, married, no savings, and a child. And it seemed totally irrational to me. And why wasn't capital made available to people with ability? So I went back uh, to Berkeley, changed my major to business, and I began a study of credit. And I think one of the things that I've discovered, Dave, is very few people ever do research. 
-hmm. If you ask a person, where did you learn that from, they're going to tell you, someone told them. And if you ask the person who told them, someone told it to them. And what you saw was I had ordered this four sets of books that no one had probably read in 20 years. And it showed that uh, the spreads were wider than the actual risk, even during the Depression. And a man named Bradford Hickman wrote this series. And this is pre-computers. And he was the head of the Cleveland Fed. And they looked at every single debt instrument issued from 1900 to 1944. And so it concluded to me that when I started studying credit at Berkeley, the worst credit was countries. They're defaulting all the time, uh, or just not paying. And they were considered the best credit. The best credit was corporations, and the one in the middle was individuals. And so it came to me that the understanding of credit was upside down. And getting capital in the hands of people with ability was, couldn't be better. It grew jobs, it grew businesses, and so that was what I did, and then that was the change. Now you have this interest, you have this passion, you wind up at Wharton, and you're actually working for Drexel Burnham and you're commuting back and forth between New York and, and, uh, and Philadelphia, the famous stories of you, you know, reading prospectuses you know, in the bus going back and forth from Philadelphia. Um, but you talked about how you wanted to create a revolution in finance when you were starting out. You had your team, you were at this firm that people really didn't know, it was a, it was a small mainstream firm. What did you mean by create a revolution in finance? This was a period of time, if you go back in history, that all the firms were under severe pressure due to the delivery of this certificate. Mm -hmm. And as interest rates went up, by the time you delivered a certificate to an institution who paid versus delivery, your interest expense could exceed your revenue. So every firm was under pressure. And I was majoring in operations research, uh, information systems, and finance. And so Drexel was the number one research firm in the United States at that time, headed by a man named Paul Miller, Jay Sherrod, Clay Anderson. And so my assignment, if I wanted to accept it, the Mission Impossible, was if I could help them solve the delivery of securities uh, issue, they would publish my research that I had done. And uh, as the leading research firm at the time, uh, this was important. They were a leading equity research firm. Right. The understanding of capital structure, as it is understood today, really did not exist. It was either a riskless bond or it was stock. Right. And we had an analyst that was the number one research analyst in aerospace and airlines at the time. And I was suggesting that we should buy TWA converts that were trading in the 20s. So I decided to go talk to the analyst who was recommending the stock. And I asked him, you know, Herb, I, I know you like the stock of TWA, but how do you feel about the 4% converts trading at 24, where I get four times my money and I get 15% cash on cash before you get anything as an equity holder? And he said, I didn't know they had convertibles outstanding. So I think the issue of understanding the relationship and the only reason I think I finally won them over was I took out the recommended stock list. And 
showed them that the rating on more than 50% of what they were recommending you buy was not investment grade. And the average rating on what they're recommending you sell was investment grade. So uh, we could move senior in the capital structure, and I don't think they really ever looked at it that way at that time. And it's an amazing thing to think about that you're talking to an equity analyst, a real equity analyst at a number at a, one rated rated equity analyst, and the concept of I didn't know they had convertible bonds is it, it just shows you how far the transparency and the evolution of finance was. So you started a high yield bond trading division at Drexel, and you know, you've talked a little bit about the market conditions, the lack of understanding of capital structure. You were starting to operate around capital structure, but talk a little bit in the late 70s um, as you were, you know, building this business. Talk a little bit about the operating environment, working in a financial firm, you know, like Drexel. And in particular, you know, talk about when the light bulb went off and you realized that you could raise capital for these companies and you started down that road. The most important period in modern financial markets is this 73 to 77 period. And understanding that the banks were in, had financial difficulties, primarily due to the backstop commercial paper at the time, REITs for one, and they eventually had to take out all of the commercial paper when it couldn't be rolled over. And so in order to survive at this period of time, the banks uh, went into a very defensive position. At the same time, oil doubled and quadrupled, the first oil shock. And so in this period of 74, interest rates doubled, stock market went down 50%. Credit controls were put into place to stop inflation. So if I was an institution, I might not be able to lend money to a new client. And so therefore, you had three types of clients. One, let's call it at the time Standard Oil New Jersey, today Exxon, who was a better credit than you were. You want to keep them on your books. You can't make any money because they probably have a lower cost of capital than you. Two, growing companies creating jobs. And three, companies that were in distress and couldn't pay you back. And so denying capital to people that were growing, essentially the decision was made in 75, 6, that you didn't want to be dependent on the strength of a financial institution to run your business. Next, you want to sell long-term fixed rate debt so you're not subject to a doubling of interest rates so you know what your cost of money is. And that really began in the 76-7 period as we came out of this, the public issuing of non-investment grade debt. Right. And so it was forced and you made between the end of 74, let's say, and the end of 76 in two years on unleveraged, straight, high-yield portfolios, you made 100% on your money. So it was a time that people were telling you, one of the leading research professors today uh, was on a panel with me in 1974, and he had predicted that his scores, his credit scores that 700 major companies in the United States would go bankrupt. I commented that if you looked at history through the Depression, it's probably less than five. We were on a panel together in 1977, and he pointed out he had predicted the four major bankruptcies of this period of 74 to 77. You asked the, the audience, other 696. <laughs> the audience, uh, very few of them were there in 74. They didn't know he had picked 700 to get four. 
But I think this is an important period of time that really created modern finance in America, that you did not want to be dependent on a single financial institution for capital, and that the public and private markets would finance companies. Unfortunately, uh, most of the other countries in the world didn't go through this process, right. and today are still grappling with a bank-dominated financial structure. The Asian crisis in 98, which started in Thailand, really occurred because the companies in the country were financed by a handful of banks. And when they needed to finance themselves, they had to pull back from financing yeah. the country. Yeah. So that really led to it, and I think the success that you could literally make 100% on your money in straight debt, and that the predictions of bankruptcy were so overblown. This allowed us to have mutual funds that bought non-investment grade debt, allowed other people to come into the marketplace, and my guess is by the end of the 70s, there were 30 or 40 firms making markets. Making markets and not these securities. You know, one of, one of the things that always amazed me at my time from when I first worked for you was the constant energy that you had and the way you kind of encouraged and motivated people. You ran for a long time, you know, pretty big business, and you had a lot of people, you know, work for you, with you. Talk a little bit about how, you know, you thought of yourself as a leader back then when you were running a business and how your view of leadership has evolved. Um, as you've kind of gone through and watched others? I think everything is, is relative. You know, during this period of time where my theories of capital structure and credit became true, uh, my father was diagnosed with melanoma. And my mother defined this period of time as what is a problem is something you can't solve with money. And so not able to save my father's life. I could refinance a country, I could think of ideas for a company, but something right close to home with access to science and our funding of medical research that we started in the early 70s, I couldn't even save my father's life. Obviously, gives you a strong feeling for what's important and not important in leadership. I think it's hard to lead unless you can lead by example. And so if you ask me a person that set an example, Gandhi set an example. Okay, he led by example. He didn't need, um, he didn't need money. He, he believed in something in a cause. And, and I felt it was very important that we believe in the free enterprise system and we believe in bringing capital to people with ability and financing new industries and new businesses at the time. And so I think if you can establish in a group of people that you have a purpose and a cause and what it is is meaningful, mm -hmm. I think it's almost impossible to lead a company in the 21st century unless the employees feel what they're doing is socially responsible and is providing value to society. And so no matter what the attacks are and what the issues are, as long as you believe yourself uh, and the people working with you that what you're doing is creating value, I think it's easy to lead. If you don't want to lead by example, 
So I wasn't the first one in, but I might have been the third one in. And why would Pretty you? Pretty close to the first one in. And but why would you ask an employee to do something you wouldn't do yourself? Sure. Okay. And so I, I think that you're there in the trenches with them makes a difference in leadership. Well said. There, um, there have been a bunch of recent surveys suggesting that 44% of millennials and 26% of baby boomers would prefer to live in a socialist country than in a capitalist one. Why do you think that's going on at this moment in time, and what's the cause? In 1993, the Milken Institute did a study. In Europe, the majority of people did not feel the financial system was working for them. But that was okay, they'll accept it. In the United States, the majority of the public felt the financial system was assisting them to build their business, to pay their bills, to buy a house, etc. Today, the vast majority of people in the United States don't believe the financial system is working for them. And to me, this is the calling of finance. The ability to bring capital to businesses, individuals, let people directly or indirectly follow and recognize their dreams, whatever they might be, that's the promise of financial systems in a free enterprise society. And this, what you're seeing here, in my opinion, is that the people don't feel that way. Now, why don't they feel that way? They don't feel that way because they have a student loan. And for 20 to 30 years, the universities raised prices and the government loans you money and you didn't have to pay interest or principal. And lo and behold, you come out of college and now you, got, you owe a lot of money and you can't get rid of your student loan even if you file for bankruptcy. So you got a burden. Number two, uh, price of homes have gone up only 50% of the time in the last 120 years. But you saw that no one ever lost any money in a house and the price of the home always goes up. And then you live through maybe losing your home, not being able to pay for your home or your apartment or your condo, having to move back in with your parents, whatever the issue might have been. So that's not working for you either. And so I think there's a tremendous challenge today that you have a large number of people that don't believe, let's forget just socialism, only 26% of millennials in the United States think their life is gonna be better than their parents. Okay, why do they feel that way? And why uh, is our society not providing them hope? So this is something that keeps me up at night. Uh, I went into finance to solve these issues, and I think this is a calling for you and other leaders to try to figure out how to address this issue, because in a democracy, the majority of people vote. And if they don't believe the free enterprise system is meeting the opportunities for people, uh, then as I see it, we have a big challenge. And so. I'd say this is a call to action, no different than one in medical or what occurred in 74 today. Uh, we have to make sure that the American dream is live and well. And what differentiated this country as a role model to the world is that everyone has a chance based on ability, not who your parents were, not your religion, not whether you're a man or a woman, uh, all the way it went to school. 
uh, but based on your ability, and that's in many ways what the capitalist system, free enterprise system is supposed to do. And uh, so to me, uh, we've got to find a way to change the student loan. I don't believe we need to have student loans anymore. We need to have equity participation. Mm -hmm. So it's never a loan, no one ever has debt. They share upside above a certain level. And whether it's the university, whether it's philanthropy, or whether it's a business. And as it relates to housing, I've spoken to you many times over the years. Uh, we provided capital for people to buy something they couldn't afford. So Americans became house poor. The transaction cost of buying and selling a condo or buying and selling a house is 10 to 20%. Today, I could buy a million dollars worth of Berkshire Hathaway for 375, and I could sell it in a second. So you have high transaction cost, and the fact is that the price doesn't go up. I think that if you invested $1,000 120 years ago in all residential housing, adjusted for inflation, you have $1,000 today. If you invested $1,000 in the stock market, you have a million dollars today. So we have got people by loaning them 95%, et cetera, into homes they can't afford. And the middle class in America spends 2% on supplemental education and spends 30, 35% on their house. On their housing. And when you add the car in, that's 50%. If you go to 11 Asian countries today, the number one expenditure in the middle class is food. Number two is the education, supplemental education of their children. So we made our, our middle class lost their net worth in their house. It's come back in parts of the country, but not all. Uh, and they are, because they can't afford supplemental education for the children, they're not able to supply those tutoring or other type of programs that are available. So I think our financial system has to solve this issue. We have done it before. In the late 1980s, there was movies, books, we all were gonna die of acid rain. Mm -hmm. And one of our one of the heads of our innovation group at the Institute, Dr. Sandu and others, created these sulfur index credits. So you had to reduce your SO2 admissions. If you reduced them more than you required, you got a credit. If you couldn't, you had to buy a credit. And within 10 to 15 years, almost all acid rain disappeared. Oh, right. yeah. uh, but we created a financial system to incentivize people to do the right thing. I would say we should not underestimate uh, what's going on in Western Europe, particularly in the U.S. here. Uh, the highest percentage of any millennial population that thinks their life is going to be better than their parents is in Germany at 30%. Now that's compared to 95% in Vietnam mm -hmm. and over 80 in Mexico and over 70 in China. So uh, we need to make um, finance you know, accessible, understandable, and people feel it's their friend, not their foe. I want to go back to cancer for a moment, though, because I know it's very personal for <clears> you, <throat> as it is for me. You know, your mother-in-law had breast cancer. As you mentioned, your father had melanoma. And you were diagnosed with prostate cancer. You know, my father passed away from prostate cancer, as, we, you know, as we've talked about a bunch. And you said something to me once that, you know, that really moved me, but really you know, also just expressed your passion for a lot of the work you've done. You said, you said to me, I'm really sorry, there's no way your father should have died. 
from prostate cancer. And the changes have been remarkable over the course of the last couple of decades. You and the Institute have played an enormous role, but how much progress are we really making in terms of eradicating cancer? And, and you know, how far do you think we'll get in the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, the death rate from prostate cancer has dropped by over 80% from projected levels. And uh, for a man in the United States, if diagnosed at any level, advanced, non-advanced, you have a 99% probability of living five years or longer. If you go to parts of Scandinavia, it's only 50%. The main difference is no testing in Scandinavia, no early diagnosis. Uh, but for all cancers, things have changed dramatically, not just prostate cancer. And so it's only a matter of time, maybe it's three years, before you won't say, I have breast cancer, you'll say you have a certain type of mutation. And prostate cancer mutations match over 60 other cancers. So you have women with ovarian cancer now taking what would have been called a prostate cancer drug. Um, I visited with 42 patients in MD Anderson not too long ago, all who had stage four melanoma, average life expectancy six to nine months, who are all in total remission today. And that was just one form of immunology which was focused on turning on your immune system. So cancer is on the run uh, as a cause of death in the advanced societies. Mm -hmm getting these proper treatments into the rest of the world has to be done. I'll shift gears for a minute. I want to talk, I want to talk about trade. I want to talk about China. I want to talk about the relationship between the U.S. and China, kind of the evolution of foreign policy and where we sit. You know, we're spending a lot of time, you know, here at the firm thinking about, you know, the path of this. There's obviously a lot of focus in the short term on trade and the president with a trade deal, but to me, there's a longer term issue in the context of these two super important economic powers in the world and kind of the clash in both the models, the competition that's natural, and the course of how we're gonna to work together over the course of the coming decades. And to me, the trade issues are secondary. The issue is IP. So you could talk to hundreds of companies who have their IP hacked or companies that have gone to China where they needed to bring a partner and then their partner becomes their competitor, et cetera. The evolution of China, one of the great success stories of the world for decades, one of the greatest accomplishments in the last 20 years is you've lifted a billion people out of extreme poverty. Half a billion of that billion is just in China. A quarter of a billion of that billion is in India. So these are unbelievable success stories. But now China's world's second largest economy, and you're looking for more of an evening of the playing field. And it starts with IP, it starts with rules, regulations, how you do business, et cetera. And to me, that is the underlying challenge. China is already faced with the fact that their manufacturing costs exceed other places in the world. There was one time, you know, that Taiwan, you made your clothes in Taiwan, sure. et cetera, but they had to go to China, Vietnam or Malaysia or someplace else. I don't believe China can compete with Mexico today in manufacturing from that standpoint. Second, technology today has negated the labor differential. 
-hmm. There's a new, the steel company that opened last year, a new mill, made a half a million tons a year, and European Steel used to be headquartered in Austria. They had a thousand employees, they have a brand new steel mill, makes a half a million tons a year with 14 employees. You're making tennis shoes in Atlanta and in Germany, not in Bangladesh today, because machines can make tennis shoes. So the labor issue to me is secondary. Um, so I really see it around IP mm -hmm. more than anything else. And if I, can my company go to China? if your company can come to the United States or Europe or someplace else. You're working on a center focused on the American dream. Talk about that a little bit. I'm quite concerned that we're not fulfilling the idea of hope. We have this National Educator Award we started 30, more than 30 years ago. And many years ago, we gave it uh, to a principal in Detroit who had reduced teen pregnancy more than anyone in the world. And when she got the award, the media was there, it's all a surprise, and uh, they asked her how she did it. And she said, uh, I found the world's greatest contraceptive. So now they're even more interested. What is the world's con greatest contraceptive? And her answer is hope. She let women know they had an opportunity even if they were from the lowest socioeconomic environment they came from. There was a future. They could go to college. They could go to school. They had a different path in life. And to me, this is our challenge. The challenge is that everyone feels they have a chance at the American dream. And this is not just the American dream. It's everyone's dream. Maya Angelou, who was interviewed many years ago on this subject, commented, it's the dream in Cairo, it's the dream everywhere. A better life for your children, mm -hmm. freedom, education, fresh water, etc. There's hope for everyone to fulfill their dream, whether it's the uh, dream of somebody in Korea or the dream of someone in Philippines or the dream of someone in Chile. But that dream that if they have talent and ability, uh, they'll have access to capital. So the Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, liberty, happiness, etc. But to me, that also is the right to access to capital based on your ability from that standpoint. Every time I talk <clears throat> to you, I'm always, you, you get me thinking in 52 different ways that I hadn't been thinking 10 minutes before. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>
The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.